Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Nick Crocker, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thank you. Appreciate it. By the way, you're a general partner at Blackbird, um, the venture capital organisation, very famous in Australia, um, one of our best known. You know, you're mentioned in the same sort of senses as the organisations such as Airtree Ventures, et cetera. So you have lots of fund structures which invested lots of business in Australia and some of them have been on my show. What is it Nick Crocker did that got him in a position that he could become a partner of an organisation like Blackbird? So what was your history? Where, where did you come from? So I started out as a founder that Blackbird invested in. And of a company, of a company, of a VC. Yeah. And what was that called? It was called Sessions. Mm-hmm. I founded it in 2012. My co-founder, Ben, and Blackbird gave us 150 grand, which was a huge amount of money at the time. It yep. meant that the two of us could work for two years and get the business going. And Nikki Schwack, Blackbird founder, and I met, and I don't want to give away your location, but it's public, at Lateria, which is <laughs> right downstairs from where we are now. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'll, tell, so, I'll tell the dudes there because they'll be happy to hear that. Yeah. So the two of us met for coffee there. We met on Twitter and we started really a friendship and worked together, invested together, and then ultimately he invested um, in sessions. If we're going back to 2015, how did you find him or how did he find you? I had this idea that we should do an accelerator in Australia. An accelerator is... Um, Um, every year you get 10, 15, 20 companies and you give them money and give them 12 weeks and then do a demo day and help them raise money. That was the idea. And I had pitched the idea to a bunch of people who said bad idea. And then everyone started saying, hey, this guy, Nicky, is going to do the accelerator. You should compare notes with him. And I sat downstairs with him and he told me his idea and I went, oh, yours is better than mine. So I'm not going to do mine anymore. I'm going to invest in yours. And I became an investor in his accelerator and that's how we got to know each other. Oh, wow. And uh, what happened to that accelerator? It's called Startmate and it's now the biggest and best accelerator in the country. It's an extraordinary organization and it's really the seed that, that's, that it was the seed for Blackbird. Startmate precedes Blackbird um, and it's an amazing organization today. So Blackbird's a, f- a funder or, a f- or investor in other people's startups or, yeah. or ventures yeah. and we'll talk in a moment about how that all works. Um, but an accelerator is like pre-seed. It's like yeah. someone's got a good idea yeah. and they turn up and you give them a desk and 
Yeah. Hell, my long of the accelerator. 25 grand in the original version of Starbay. We were giving 25 grand to the founders. What does the accelerator do for me? So 25 grand gives me gives you the chance to maybe leave your job and start yep. this from scratch. Yep. Puts you in a room with 20, 30 other people who are exactly in the same spot as you. But doing so you, different things. But doing different things. So you get to learn, share notes, cry on each other's shoulders, which is more valuable than you might realize. You get to meet a group of mentors who might help you raise money, introduce you to customers. So basically the way I think about an accelerator, the job of an accelerator is in the space of 12 weeks, it should quadruple your valuation. It should be that intense and that valuable that you come in worth X and you come out worth 4X because of how much you've learned and improved in that 12 weeks. Giants is sponsored by, let's call it sponsored by Blackbird. Yeah. But Blackbird then goes out and finds the mentors to put into the program. What are you looking for? If you think about where we see it, we've got 100 portfolio companies, plus or minus. Let's call it two founders in each. That's 200 founders who might want to give advice. And then they've all got teams, heads of VPs of engineering, VPs of product. So then you multiply it again. You've got 1,000 people right in our immediate ecosystem. The one thing that is unique about it is they all ha- they all want to give back. They love helping. And I think what happens is when you do a job, So often you're just dealing with problems. Like you're often feeling, the feeling of being an operator in a startup is often overwhelming in terms of how much, how hard it is. 100%. And sometimes it's nice to go sit in the expert seat and give advice without having to go and implement it. I I think that's the psychological thing that's going on. I think that's what drives people to help is to go, yeah, I'm struggling, but I'm learning a lot. And some of my lessons I can give to someone else and I can help them avoid the pain I'm going through. So we actually just have this organic push from founders and operators to want to help. And so Giants is a way for us to channel it, that that knowledge to people who want to start companies right at the beginning. But for Blackbird, it means that we can go and have a good interaction with a thousand entrepreneurs, 2000 entrepreneurs in a year without me having to go and do about 2000 meetings. It's about spreading that across the community. And it also just allows us to meet entrepreneurs right at the beginning. Like, so there's like a funnel for you, a, yeah. an early funnel. Yeah. And we look at it really closely. Like we look at um, each mentor after they meet with that founder, gives them a rating of, is this someone we should look at? And so we track that really closely. And so when we start to see mentors saying, wow, this founder's onto something, one of us will jump in straight away and offer to meet them. How do people sort of get the courage to make the call? It's a really good question. So there's two things to, to call out. The first is being a founder is way harder than we give it credit for. Yeah. Like you know this, mm. the, the the individual daily struggle of being a founder it's is tough. It's so tough, right? And no one lets you get out of it. You've got, no. to, you've got to stay there. Yeah. And it's tough for everyone. Like, mm. you know, some founders might have a great six months where nothing goes wrong, but month seven, something's going wrong. Like it, it, it comes, the difficulty of building something new comes for everyone. So at the same time as I don't think we appreciate how hard it is, we also don't appreciate how easy it is or how accessible it is. The founders that are building these great businesses are special people, but they're not a thousand times more special. Like, like there's actually a lot, there's, there's a lot of latent capacity in our society for people to start companies. So I have this tension of, I want thousands more people to start companies, but I also know how difficult it's going to be for them. So sometimes all you have to do is just what what you just said is that they have this burning desire and that's the key is that that burning desire will cause them to start the company. And sometimes all we have to do is just a small nudge and say, you're good enough to start a company, you should go and do it. But you can't do it without burning desire. 
and if and if you if you can't tick that burning desire over into action then you don't want to force people too hard because starting up is hard and if you know if you're sort of on the fence then six months into it you'll be you'll be jumping back over the fence and getting a full-time job because it is just so difficult because it's a big risk particularly if you're a someone whose normal job is not that mobile in other words you leave their job someone's going to jump into their job straight away you lose your security um you may do well in the startup but at the same time if you fail for whatever reason and there's nothing wrong with failing, by the way, but it can be just you're just too tired. It's just too much. But you you run the risk that you might not be able to get that job back. How do people go? Do they work? Does it work or not work on average? It works in all kinds of weird and wonderful ways. And even if the business doesn't work, the thing that people get is accelerated learning for a year or two, like way faster than you could learn with an MBA, way faster than you could learn with any other experience. Like when you go start a startup, you learn so much about yourself, about getting things done in the world. So I actually think if you go out to a startup, fail two years later, you go back into the job market. So long as psychologically you didn't beat yourself up too much for the failure, you're going to go back into the job market with a new set of skills and and you're going to be able to get stuff done in a way you never could before because you just know how to be resourceful. You know how to be relentless. You know how to survive when there's no money, no marketing budget. Like you just know how to how to get things done in the world. So I would say there's actually less risk than people think. I think the risk is not giving it a crack because it gets, I would observe, it gets harder as you get older. Older? Now, what does that mean, though, by the way? Older? What, what do you mean by older? Are you talking about over 30, over 40, over 50? What, 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 I mean, older is a relative thing, especially when you're talking to someone like me. I think when other people rely on you for... So you've got a kid, for example. Kids, kids would be the test yeah, yeah, yeah. of, all right, now now maybe you really... People are going to suffer if you if you have no money for two years. Yeah, that would be the point where I do feel like the window, the window shuts a little bit on you where you're like, okay, I, I really do need to put a roof over the head of my kids. I, I did my first startup at 26. I, I knew, I, I found out sort of what entrepreneurship was at 25 and a year later I did my first company. And I look back and I go, six years of a law degree, was that real? Like I probably could have earned a lot more if I'd just gone into a startup at 19. It didn't, wouldn't even matter if it failed, if it was good, whatever it was. I think the, the I think I didn't appreciate how quickly that window, especially when I had kids at 30, 31. So I just didn't appreciate how how the the risk window does close, and so I think just launching into something during that period where you have no responsibilities to other people is is an unbelievable learning opportunity. And I, when I I'm in the position where a lot of people or people often come to me for advice about what to do next, and I always say optimize for the highest rate of learning and the best quality of people. And it's, you know, there's other mental models you can use, but startups are a really good way to get both of those. Having experienced sort of similar things, it's um, similar academic periods in my life. Probably today, unless you want to become a lawyer, there's no point doing a commerce law degree or a law degree of any type. But what about if you want to go into med tech, you want to do a startup? And I've seen a few startups and I've seen them go out and try and raise money where the person who's the entrepreneur behind the the technology business, particularly if it's got something to do with biology or, or medicine or, or health, if they don't have the skill and or the the technical know-how, it's a bit more difficult for them to raise them. Are there some tertiary environments where it's actually probably pretty important that you have the tertiary qualifications? Yeah, 100%. So, if you, so 
So yes, the advice is different. General's law degree doesn't set you up for a specific skill set, but doing a PhD in um, human biology might get you to a point that's very, very interesting. In if terms it's medtech. Yeah, it yeah. Might, yeah, or in terms of starting a company. So we care about this a lot. So I, I told you there's a heap of people in Australian society who should start startups, but don't realize that they can. I think that's true. I think yep. there's a ton of people with PhDs right now in universities who would be incredible founders as well. And so we've set up a program called Foundry where we give grants, small grants to people with PhDs basically and help them, same same, same as the accelerator, help them to come and understand what it takes to start a startup and put them around other people who want to do that and then hopefully fund them. And so, so we've done that once and we've, we've done that program once and we made two investments out of it. So Foundry is similar to Giant, but it's more more directed at PhDs. Yeah, yeah. Um, because what's very interesting about that is funny, you know, uh, I know Macquarie and Westpac in particular, they they recruit PhDs all the time. Yeah. And that's a big deal. Okay? And then they put them in the back room and behavioural scientists who can sort of build um, build software that or build research that allows the banks to know how to capture you as a customer and keep you. Yeah. But, and it's about managing your behavior and their yeah. behavior to you. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, and they lock these PhDs away and they, they, they go to the universities and they comb the universities and they drag out those. And then they can be a scientist. Yeah. And not, not, not necessarily anything to do with economy or money or banking PhD, but they might be an engineer, a PhD in engineering, and they bring them to build engineering programs and stuff like that. Um, and I know that I, I remember many years ago, people, and before the, VC boom, like the sort of industry you're in, guys used to get, I used to know guys used to go to universities and comb the universities for PhD people who were making discoveries, particularly in relation to technology at the time, and then they would offer them a little bit of money, but they'd end up owning quite a large percentage of the IP, whatever it was that they were working on. I don't know if that still exists anymore, but I just knew guys, that was their profession. They would go around combing university trying to find these dudes. Usually they were blokes, but, but these days there's probably a lot more, fem- many more females doing this sort of stuff. So are you saying that Foundry is that type of concept, but probably much more um, uh, fair as an organisation? <laughs> You're not stitching anyone up like they, the people used to stitch them up. But it doesn't get away from the fact that there are some brilliant PhD people around who just need a little bit of coercion and help, yeah, and a little bit of funding, belief, and capital. belief. Belief's a really important one, yeah, yeah. And, and belief comes in the form of capital. Yeah. If you offer me twenty-five grand, I now feel empowered. Yeah. Finally, someone believes in me. Yeah. Because all those PhDs, are, they're always looking for grants. They're all applying for this grant, that grant, but all the grants go to the their uh, professors and all that sort of stuff who have always been there at those environments. And very few of these students who have, say, got their PhD, very rarely do they get the grant. They, they keep applying, keep applying, keep applying, but they rarely get it. Yeah. So is this where Blackbird through Foundry is trying to play? Yeah, we just think, if you th- what's a startup? A startup is a PhD by another name because you spend three years going profoundly deep on a very single problem for a customer. So yeah. whether you're doing a marketing startup or a technical startup, you're kind of doing a PhD. So it's actually a really interesting place to play because someone has said, I'm going to dedicate three years of my life going so deep on this one problem. I've got the discipline to do it. I've got the patience to do that. And then they come out with something interesting potentially. So I don't think it'll be apply for the vast majority of people in PhDs are probably happy with where they are, but there will be a subset of them that will have the burning desire mm. that you called out 
And they're the ones we're trying to get to. If you have a burning desire to, uh, for, to found a startup and you have the depth of knowledge in an interesting space, let's see if our capital and our belief can unlock you to do something bigger than you maybe thought possible before. The difference between Foundry and Giant is that Foundry actually applies some money as well. Yeah, yeah. Smaller, just, much smaller cohorts and yeah. much more targeted and much smaller. Let's say in relation to Foundry at the moment, where, where are you seeing activities? Are we talking med tech? What are we talking about here? I don't even know how to limit it. Climate? Climate, yeah. Human biology, um, genetics. Uh, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I'll limit it. If I had to give you a list, I'll limit it. Like uh, You're just looking for that combination of someone so passionate and so deep on a particular area with that burning desire, that ability to go and make the jump, make the next step. And how do they apply? Blackbird.vc, V for venture, C for capital. Yeah, and uh, what about AI as a category? Yeah, it's coming at all angles. It's it's how do we use it to run our fund and our team better? And then it's how do our portfolio companies, our already existing portfolio companies that we've invested in, how do they use it to make their businesses better? And then it's all the new businesses that are coming to us, pitching us these ideas, which ones are the ones that we're going to back and, and jump in and, and lead investments on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. back here with Nick Crocker. He's a general partner of Blackbird and he's been through the process too, by the way, so he understands what it's like to have a startup as what it's like to divest a startup and what it's like to invest in a venture capital organization. It's called Blackbird, which then goes on to invest in startups again. So he's gone right through the whole process. Mate, like you guys have been around for a fair while now, but Australia is relatively immature when it comes to venture capital. There are more of you becoming available and there's more people investing in your funds. Um, how is the venture capital scene in Australia? Let's say relative to obvious places like the Silicon Valley, but how is it going? Like, and, and what does it give to our um, investment community? So I would say we're 10 years into this era of venture capital, which started back in 2012, 2013, when Blackbird first started raising. And it's been a, a pretty wild 10 years. So we had the massive run up in valuations to 2021, and then we had the run down in value. What does that mean? So in 2021, one of the most valuable assets on the planet was a high growth startup. And people were willing to pay 
very, very high prices for those startups. Investors were prepared to pay. Yeah, both on the public markets and, and private. And this is later stage investors. This is companies with millions of dollars in revenue, but they were attracting really extraordinary valuations. Um, and people at the time were concerned that there was a bubble. And in the two years since, those valuations have come back a long way. Just go look at any technology company in the public markets. They're worth a lot less than they were worth for the most part in 2021. So it's been a it's been a really interesting run up. When I started in 2016 at Blackbird, no one was paying attention. Canva was not the success that it had become. Atlassian was not the success that it has Afterpay. become. Afterpay was pretty unknown public company. What's beautiful though is we had Atlassian prove that you can start a global wonderful startup from Australia, and then we had Canva prove it again, and then Afterpay prove it again. And so really 10 years is, can we get 10, five or 10 Canva Afterpay type outcomes for the ecosystem? So when I talk about the ecosystem, what are we talking about? We're talking about the ability, ability for an Australian or a Kiwi founder to raise money for their idea and go and pursue it. And from that lens, I still am extraordinarily optimistic about where we're at because you would remember when you founded your businesses, it was hard to raise money in 2000. It's, it's, it's not not hard now, but there's a lot, as you said, there's a lot more people that are willing to do it. And I think there's, again, I feel like I'm, um, I'm preaching here, but I do think we can change the shape of the Australian economy and have a huge portion of, of Australia's value be its entrepreneurs. And right now, it's a small portion and that can grow much, much larger. I think that's a good thing for society as a whole. The most important group of people in that mix is the founders, but you also need investors. And the problem with Atlassian, not a problem, but the investors were US-based. So we had this amazing Australian company go to be an incredible success and there were no Australians investors who really made any money from that because there were no Australian investors to invest in Atlassian when it was growing up. Why? I don't know. I just think there was a doubt. There's a, I do think there's a, there's a cultural element too that we're still overcoming, which is that we just struggle to believe that we can win gold medals on the, on the kind of, in the business, in the Olympics of, of business globally, the idea that Australia would be a gold medalist, I still think is hard for us to just culturally wrap our heads around. You, you get in an Uber and talk to the driver, they're probably not thinking about startup founders. But 10 years from now, I think they'll know a lot more startup companies and startup founders than they know today. And is it, I mean, would you consider it as important as something that is of national interest? In other words, is nation building? A hundred percent. I mean, do you think there's enough going on to make sure this is properly seeded as of national interest? I think great founders aren't looking at the kind of, um, CPI prints and looking at what inflation is to decide when to start a company. They're going to start a company in a bad economy or a good economy, which is a beautiful thing about the startup ecosystem. It's actually pretty resilient. Because we're all mad. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, a little yeah, bit of madness helps. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Uh, not, not too much, but yeah, yeah. a little bit. Not off the scale, but yeah. Government can definitely make the situation better. But ultimately, we kind of want to be a self-sustaining ecosystem, not relying on government. So yeah, the thing we yeah. haven't talked about that will probably, as I say this, will bore most of your people, most of the people listening is superannuation. Yeah. 
Well, you put it in a context, so you mean the big super funds, the massive industry funds and, and others, but the massive industry funds and um, uh, um, how they can start to participate yeah. in so, so VC world. Exactly. So super funds are looking to get a return for their members. Mm. We all have super and we'll probably over the last 10 years, Australian super funds have started to invest into Australian VC funds. Is that right? Yeah. Allocating some of their investable money? A in- very, very small percentage in you know with respect to their total amount of um, capital that they manage, but to us as an industry, a very large amount of capital. Are they coming through people like you? In other words, are they investing in your yeah. funds? Yeah, funds are investing in funds like Blackbird yep. and then Blackbird is investing in founders. Investing their money into, into the founders. And if those founders go on to be successful, that capital will then be returned to the members of those super funds. Can I, can I say something about that? Because what's interesting, um, back in 2002... Um, Karen and I and Wizard, and uh, we went along to an organisation called Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Bank Asset Management, which was not Deutsche Bank, was an asset manager. They were just a trustee, let's call it, and a manager. And they, were in, they invested into the Wizard business funds, and I don't know how, how it was able to be done back then, but funds from um, the military fund, the Australian military fund, which is a super fund for the military personnel, mm. um, money from... Um, the PSS, PSS Public Service Superannuation Fund and also another uh, Commonwealth, Commonwealth, Super, uh, Commonwealth Superannuation Fund, which they're all merged now. They, I think they're all sitting in Australia, Australia Fund or something like that. But that was one of the first times a super fund had actually invested in, a, not we weren't a startup at that stage, but we were early stage business, we're only two years old. And they invested into the wizard um, headstock. They bought twenty five percent. They they invested quite a bit of dough, sixty million it was at the time, and um, that's a lot of money in those days. It's a lot of money today. A lot of money today. Yeah, totally. And uh, you know, I don't see them doing that activity anymore. And they did very well out of it, by the way. They made a lot of dough out of it. Um, you know, I was able to double their money very quickly in uh, two years. They got twice double their money back in two years. Um, why haven't they been doing that? more, why, why didn't that continue on? Because that was a good experience for them. Well, the good news is it did. It did continue, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, and they've been incredible partners to the venture industry but also directly to startups. Many of the biggest super funds in the country are direct investors in Canva. Right, the, the, those types of super funds. Same situation. Do they go through your, no, they're not through you, you mean direct to Canva. They go through us, we, we still manage the relationship yep. but the, but that's a, that's that's going to be a huge win again for their members. Because ultimately, so th- this is this is a weird way to think about it, but here's how I think about it. One of our big investors is Host Plus. Yep. A lot of Host Plus members are people that, let's say, people that work at cafes. So probably the barista that made our coffee this morning was a Host Plus member by default. Yep. In a sense, I work for the person that made my coffee this morning. That's right. Because it's their superannuation that comes to us that we invest in founders. Founders succeed, comes back to us, goes back to the super fund that goes back to the members. Like that's the that's the burden and the responsibility that we think about is like that's who we're work, working for, and it's it's it's, it's this, the amount of capital that the super funds manage now is so large that if if we continue to earn the right to access superannuation money, we'll be able to sustain a very healthy Australian startup ecosystem just through the support of the super funds for decades. So, like someone like IFM, um, who's a big fund manager. 
the super funds don't invest, usually don't invest directly like they did in the case that I just gave the example of. They usually go through a manager. So in my case, it was Deutsche Asset Management. Yeah. But some these days they go through- Through us. Funds who go into funds. So yeah. it's called fund to fund. No, do they go direct into us? They go direct into you. Yeah. And then we manage- But through their manager- they will have. They don't it's like you, you. Don't ring up Host Plus. They do. They yeah. go. You do. Yeah. yeah. So you go pitch to Host Plus or have not pitch, but you go and have days no, where we you're taking through. Pitch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is what we're looking at. These are the industries that are doing really well. This is what's not doing so well. This is where we're driving our our current um, focus. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So one of our partners, Tom, went down to Melbourne two weeks ago and pitched to one of our other super funds and basically just spent an hour and a half talking about AI. Here's where the AI landscape is right now and here's what we're seeing. So it's absolutely a symbiotic relationship between us and the super funds now. And again, for the entrepreneurs that are listening right now, that might seem boring, but that's the ultimate source of the capital. And yeah. that's really, really important because if we keep earning the right to own, to to build that relationship with super funds, we get to keep funding startups. And and that's like that's the circular kind of the thing that will keep sustaining itself, especially so, if we start returning money to super funds, um, which was going to start to happen uh, a lot more over the next couple of years. Yeah, and, and I guess because a lot of the super funds traditionally would have invested a, a large proportion of their money in equity markets like stock markets, um, a large proportion of the funds in buying big commercial towers in, in Sydney and buying, you know, on a centre point or whatever it is, some of which, by the way, are suffering a little bit at the moment. Um, because of lots of changes, but um, what is it that will get the big super funds, the larger ones in particular, or any of them for that matter, allocate a larger slice of their investable money that comes from their members? What are, what is are the sorts of things that will um, entice them to allocate larger percentages? I think they just need proof that as a as a community of you know blackbird and all of our peers can not just invest the money but it can return the money and multiples of the money to them so that if they give us for every dollar they give us we give them back 3 or 4 then then the cycle will continue and they'll be able to continue to justify investing in us but I, it's it's worth pointing out this is right now still a very 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 small slice of the capital that they manage and our job as an industry is to whether it's us as investors or founders building businesses that are raising money our job is just to keep succeeding. I think most people think that all you do is operate for high net wealth individuals who give you, you know, a couple of million bucks and you get 50 of them and you've got 100 million all of a sudden and then you run off invest in VCs. But it, the, the bulk of the money in this country, in Australia at least, sits in the big super funds because, you know, Paul Keating, something that Paul Keating did that was absolutely brilliant, whether he knew it at the time in the, in the 90s or not, I don't know, but the guaranteed superannuation contributions um, from employers for employees was not just going to help out employees when the, when the day comes where they retire, but actually helps the total economy in that they, they've managed to build the greatest flow of cash flow, repository of cash, digital money, of course, and cash flow on an annual basis guaranteed every year. 10% of the total wages in Australia get paid, you're going to get go into the super fund. So as our wage pool grows, the 10% grows obviously, and that money just gets dumped into the superannuation industry, the big funds usually, and that money then has got to go find, do something. It can't just sit there. They don't, they don't get put on deposit with Westpac. Uh, they might put something on deposit with Westpac, but they, just, they can't do that because it's not right. going to return enough, right. especially during the GFC, uh, to, to COVID, they are getting like 0.1 of a percent. So was that one of the things, and, and which I want to go to, because you talked about- no, 22 is bad, 23 has been bad, 21- yeah. 
2021 it peaked. We started getting crazy valuations. Crazy valuations. What is the, do you think, Nick, is the relationship between really poor returns on monies on deposits by superannuation trustees and or just generally trustees generally of anybody's money when interest rates are at 0.1 of a percent. So you put your money in deposit with a bank, you got nothing. You, in fact, you're going backwards when you add in inflation and everything else and pay tax. What was the impact of that effect, which is caused, was created by the Reserve Bank, um, relative to valuations, in other words, people having a greater propensity saying, I can't, we can't invest this money into so-and-so bank and get 0.1% per annum um, whilst we're looking at different investments. And we've got piles of money coming in. It's you know, coming in by the hundreds of millions. We've got to go invest it somewhere else. So why don't we look at the uh, venture capital environment? So there was like a demand or a hunger for to invest in VCs. Did Is any of the fact, and, and of course the VCs are going, well, there's not many of us that are valuable, uh, any good. So if you want to invest in me, my valuation is now, 40 billion. Now today it's probably worth 20, but then it was for, it's 40 billion. And I think you know what I'm talking about. So, but if you want to invest, we're exciting and everyone knows around the world, we're well loved. Um, you know, you can invest in an evaluation of 40 billion. I mean, how much of that, how much of, is the interest rate environment that was being offered, the alternative returns that were being offered during the uh, COVID period, how much of that was um, lit up people's delight and demand? and craziness to invest at overvaluations. Yeah. So I won't comment on the broader like economic theory because I don't have any understanding of that, honestly. But let me tell you what it felt like to be an investor, like investing through those markets. So I started investing in 2016. Blackbird has always been, will always be your first investor. That's our goal. So if we're your first investor, often it's there's two people, just an idea. So that's where we start the journey. So my experience of the run-up in valuations was that companies that I'd invested in at very low valuations, relatively speaking, ran up in value through 2021 in crazy ways. So in the space of three years, a company I invested at a $10 million valuation was worth $500 million. Whoa. Right? And another company that I invested in a $30 million valuation was worth almost a billion dollars in the space of three years. If you kind of went down the stack... Companies like Shopify and Twilio and Snapchat and Peloton, these public, very well-known companies were worth huge amounts of money, massive multiples on their revenue. And so the next investor down the chain was saying, wow, if I can go and list this public company at that revenue multiple, I should be buying them buying them just before they go public. And then that, that group of people was going, oh, well, if these people are buying it at that valuation, then I'm going to go fund the Series B or the Series C round at that valuation and then the Series A, suddenly you can justify doing it, doing it at 100 times ARR. And we did remarkably little of that, actually. Like we we have all, like something I – because I, I know the way we operate. I know our numbers. We actually really kept our heads through 21. We were in a, in a market that was inflated, but we really kept our heads. And because our starting point is day one, we're not paying crazy multiples. We're paying, you know, standard seed round today is probably $8 million valuation for the startup. And we were always, you know, plus or minus, we we're paying roughly that at the beginning. And, you know, the first thing, the first round, I think it's public, the first round of Canva was worth $8 million. And the most recent one was 25 and a half US, so 39 Aussie. From 8 million to 39 billion in the space of a decade, that's a pretty, 
remarkable journey. But our place to play is in that early stage. So I just also don't come from a finance background. So it's quite odd to go through that experience and go, wow, these assets that we're investing in are suddenly so valuable. But then the last two years has been the opposite, which is that people aren't willing to pay those prices anymore. And the real kind of the, the real pressure has come on founders because where they thought their business might be worth 25 times the revenue they were making, now it might be five times. And their plans were, we're going to spend money in a way that allows us to raise the next round in 18 months. Well, now you have to do it when you have to make money last 36 months. And in 36 months time, you might not even get the valuation you had two years ago. You might have a down round. You might have a down round. So it's actually been a very tough time for founders. Like that's the that's the group of people I think that have suffered the most because they're in 2021, grow at all costs. Founders will be rewarded for growing at all costs. 2022, now we want you to be profitable. And you can't turn a you can't turn the ship around in two quarters and go from burning cash to profitability without significant pain. And so that's a lot. The last two years has been supporting every founder in their own different way through a very different and often unprecedented market as in when was 2000, you had to either be around in 2001 or 2008 to really know what the precedents were here. And most founders that we're funding were not, were not founders at that point. Or, so it's been tough. Or And if they were, they're out. <laughs> Thank God. Or they failed, one of the two. You just mentioned something, ARR. Um, Annual and, recurring revenue, sorry. Right. I that, no, no, that's okay. And, and that's important. That's what I want to talk to you about. And we have uh, TAMS, you know, Total Addressable Market. Yeah. You, you guys, we, the industry, has a lot of short versions of what you consider, what would be considered to be terms of art. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and how does... What would you suggest to a person with a great idea who has a burning desire? How do they get their head around what it is they need to have in their head in case they come along to meet someone like Blackbird seeking investment, startup investment? What are the? How do they go and find out the sorts of things you need them to be able to talk about? Yeah. I mean, where do they find that shit out? Like uh, is that is that joining the Giants program? Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great start or joining Startmate or doing an accelerator. But uh, honestly, like it's our job not to use the acronyms. It's not the founder's job to decode whatever terms of art. And and it doesn't matter to me if a founder comes in and doesn't know ARR or the magic number or um, GRR or NDR or NRR, all these stupid acronyms that we use that are confusing now that I say them out loud. Basically, it all the founder needs to understand is, did you build something new? Did you find someone, a customer who loved it? Ideally, did that customer pay for it? Are there lots of customers like that all pay for it? And hopefully over time, will they pay you more for it? Because it becomes more valuable to you. And then do you say, by the way, we want to make sure that someone else is not already doing this. So you, the founder, where's your research to tell us that this is unique or at least it's equal to equivalent to other models around the world and what are the other models or does I mean, if it's, a good, if it's a good idea, then a hundred people are going to try it. If you tell me no one else is doing it, it just means you haven't looked hard enough. Like ideas are cheap. Everyone's going to have it. Everyone's going to have a crack. So what's unique good. about it then? So 
if 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 it's a good idea, there's probably a hundred other people who tried it or, or in fact are doing it. Are you, is it your proposition or the founder's proposition? Yeah, but I've got to do it better. I'm, or I've got a, a slight nuance to it that's going to make it more effective. Or is that yeah, was that what that much. is that the conversation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this you, slight nuance makes it sound like it's um, nothing or it's or it's um, meaningless. But actually, if you figured out the slight nuance, you've probably gone really deep on the problem and figured out an angle on it that no one else has. We call them earned insights. As in everyone can have an insight from a high level, but the insights you earn by going and building a product and giving it to a customer and seeing how the customer uses it and then discovering something new, those earned insights is where that edge comes from. And so the experience of being with a great founder is that they'll come in and they'll teach you about something and you'll come away with your eyes open to a new part of the world. And one test for me is do I then go home and talk to my wife, Jules, and say, I met someone today. Check this out. This is a new part of the world I didn't know about and, and let me tell you about it and to let me tell you how it's going to evolve and let me tell you how exciting it is. And so you don't need to know ARR and all the acronyms to do that. You just need to tell me about the problem and who you solved the problem for and who that how that person's life was changed because you solved the problem for them. As you were speaking then, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I might be able to give a, a real example, a real, real life example that applied to me. So when John Simons had his way of distributing mortgages, Make all the assumptions that we have to make about pricing, all sorts of things, but um, and, and execution. But John's proposition or thesis was that borrowers did not want to go into a bank, bank branch to borrow money; they wanted a, what he called a mobile lender to come to you. So it was a new way of distributing stuff. It was very, very, very clever. So the wizard nuance to that was no. Um, some people don't like you to come into the house. Because because all of a sudden they're, they're, you're going into their environment, so we said we open up a franchise system, which was a different way of distributing. We, we would say we will come to your house if you want us to, but by the way, we have a shop front you can come visit, which is not a bank branch. You don't have to queue up with both people depositing money. You don't have to make an appointment with a bank manager. We want to do your business, so there's a nuance, and and that and that obviously worked, and it wasn't before long that we were running more business than he was because I think our business model worked. In fact, that's how everybody does their business today. They're all franchise-based, and that, that model got adopted by more Moist Choice, um, Aussie Home Loans, et cetera, et cetera, Rams. Um, but that's, that's an example of the nuance. Exactly. And, and, but it wasn't just an idea. It was something we really studied, and I spent like months on it trying to work out what the solution would, what would be a better solution. But I had to look at what John was doing in the first place because what John did was the brilliant piece. I nuanced it because I sort of just tried to uh, uh, unpack it and repack it a bit better. That's, that's all I was doing. But the point being here that if you've got an idea that someone else is doing, don't think, oh, it's no good, I'm not going to go talk to Blackbird because I, someone else is already doing it. Have a look at what they're doing, unpack it, lay it out in front of yourself and then repack it obviously test it, but repack it relative to the consumer who's going to buy it or whether that's an enterprise consumer or that's a consumer consumer, retail consumer. Don't be deterred. Would you say that's a fair thing? But remember, I I bet at that time there were 10 entrepreneurs who had a similar idea to you, but the bit, so you got to have the good idea, but then how many of them went and executed it? You got to do it. And then you do the first franchise and you realize, oh, we we didn't think of these 500 things. 100%. Then you, fix it. Then you do the second franchise. Oh, now we got two. You're refining all the time. Constantly refining. And so it's can you have the idea and then can you stick with the discomfort of it being wrong and then less wrong and then less wrong and then less wrong and then on the other side sometimes something's right 
Well, can, but can the, in fact, the the investor like Blackbird? Can you stick with the discomfort too, or do you say that's our job? That's so, I think what makes. So you're us happy you, to do that? Well, not happy to, but that's what you do. We invest so early. We have to be ready for whatever something becomes, and yeah. we have to we have to fundamentally trust the entrepreneur will make the right decisions with the information that comes to light as they go and roll it out. And the inf- the idea we see first will not be the perfect idea, and the execution will change the idea massively. The individual who's got the idea, or the the people who got the idea, who are trying to raise a half a million dollars, have to work on this thing like full time. You, 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 would you expect them to work on full time? Hundred percent. Yeah, and if so, of that half a million dollars, can they take themselves a wage? Like, can they say, "We need to, I, I know, I've got to pay a thousand dollars a week rent, or seven hundred bucks a week rent. I, I, I need to take fifty grand a year." I mean, what's the attitude of the investor around that? I don't want the founder waking up in the morning stressed about food or stressed because their family's struggling. I don't, in practice, I don't need to put pressure on entrepreneurs on how much they pay themselves because the thing they care about most is making that capital last as long as they can. Yeah, so you've got to keep the runway going. So a founder that could pay themselves 250 grand usually ends up paying themselves 100 and setting aside 150 to go and hire the engineer yep. that can help them make yep. a much more valuable, interesting business over the next 18 months. Yeah. I'd say for the founder that raises, let's call it, let's say $2 million, I would say is the average amount that we're funding companies in their first, um, with our first investment. Remembering that five people full-time is going to cost you, you know, a million bucks a year. So really $2 million is the same as saying, we're going to hire five to eight people and go and build something for the next two years. That's how I think about $2 million in a business sense. They're probably paying themselves between sixty and one hundred and twenty grand, but rarely more than that. Yep. And it's rarely I'm not I'm not being asked. They're yep. just they're, they're trying to make that most most founders would prefer to hire someone great than pay themselves more, mm. and they pay themselves just up to the limit of where it isn't stressful. And it's really we don't want them to be stressed on the financial side. And you know, in practice, it, it's it's never been an issue. How does someone work out? It's just an idea. There's, they've got no money. There's no revenue coming. How do they work out that it's worth $80 million? Here's a great idea. I've tested it. You know, I've got the expertise. Um, I want to raise $2 million. I want to give you 10% Blackbird. Um, therefore, by definition, my business is now worth $80 million. How how the hell do they work that out when they've got no revenues to apply multiples to? Yeah, I think that's what's hard for people on the outside to understand. You've got to understand the incentive that I have is that the founder's going to raise money from us and then more money and then more money and then more money. Because so, there's more series. Yeah. At each step of the way, you'll raise more capital to go and hire more people to go and build more product, basically. By the time you're back for the fourth time and the com- that to raise money and the company's actually worth something at that point, say it's worth $100 million at that point, I want that founder as motivated to go and continue succeeding at that point as they were on day one. And if we as investors take all the equity in those first two rounds... And by the time the business they're is going to say about five percent sooner later, I'm out. Yeah, uh, and and they're not going to, you know, then you're never going to have the chance then to go and build the Canva-like success. Yeah. So that's a really big factor in the early part of the investing cycle is not to take so much. It's, it's a balance of of giving them enough to go and hire enough people to go and achieve some meaningful milestone, which is usually getting their first first revenue from customers. So that's really the thing is. I want to give you enough money to go and get some revenue so that we can figure out, do we actually have a business here or not in the next two years? And then there's a, there's a discussion back and forth about, you know, how can we do this in a way that doesn't cripple you 
in and cripple the business and cripple your motivation in five years' time? I mean, valuation is a pretty specific process. I mean, the, you know, there are such things as valuables out there, but no one can value a business that doesn't have any revenue. It's got, but is it based on what the addressable market is and you sort of work backwards and you make a certain level of assumptions? Do you have a model you give to them and say, look, plug into this model? I mean, how do you, how do, how do, a lot of these people just don't have a clue how to, how to build a valuation. Yeah, I would say that it basically is just most people, if you raise a million dollars, you'll give up 20% of the company. If you raise 2 million, you'll give up 20% of the company. Yeah, I get it. If you raise 4, you'll give up 20% of the company. So the valuation is a proxy of giving up 20% of the company. And then the amount you raise is all about how much confidence do I as an investor have in your ability to wisely spend $4 million. Yeah. So some people will come in and go, hey, I have a, you give me $4 million, I'm going to go build you this product and get into this market and sell to this customer. And you're a hundred percent. I trust you to do that because of everything you've done in the past and how you know how you might have already done it without any money and and a founder where you don't have as much confidence or it isn't as clear a path. Then you know, look, I actually do think it's an entrepreneurial skill to learn how to spend money wisely. Mm. And I don't think you should start with you know ten million dollars or twenty million dollars. Like you want to start with five hundred or a million or two million dollars and pay the wages and hire the staff and learn how to retain. You know, all the things that you need to learn to set the foundation. But in practice, it's if I could average it all out, yeah, you, you know, valuation somewhere between five and fifteen million dollars, and you're raising between one and three million dollars. Yeah, so that makes twenty percent. Yeah, it's not. It's not. A, it's not science. It's. 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 The, it's a first step. It's sort of taking an option on a on a future that could be as extraordinary as Canvas, and so. If you're optimizing for price now, generally you're not looking at the long term. These these funds that we run are ten year funds, so I'm looking at what can this be in ten years? How can I make this the best thing it can be in ten years? And you have to make decisions on day one that set yourself up for that future. It's funny when when I went to see Kerry Packer and uh, to to invest in the Wizard business, the way he looked at the twenty five million dollar dollars he invested, it was a little bit more complicated than that because I sort of financially we financially engineered it a little bit, but for, through ECorp. Um, but nonetheless, it was $25 million of value. He wasn't interested in whether the business was worth, um, at the time, $25 million. He got 50%. He, he wasn't sort of really looking at that. He was more interested to look at, does that, will that, can that $25 million investment today yield me a business that's worth $500 million in five years' time? That was their modelling. So they wanted to turn a $25 million business pre-money, $50 million post-money, but theoretically, but $25 million pre-money to a $500 million business in five years' time as a result of them investing $25 million. That was his That was his program. That's how Ashok Jacob ran it. He didn't go to KBMG for the valuation is well, what you're saying. Well, I actually, I actually went and got uh, Arthur Anderson or something like that. In those days, I don't know if they still exist, but it helped me through it. I went and spoke to uh, – I went and spoke to actually Jonathan Mott in those days who was at uh, – Maybe Nemo or whatever, and he was an investment bank and he sort of did some numbers on the 500 million though. It wasn't on what we're worth. Is it possible to get a big enough book to have a, a to have a you know a discounted cash flow that allow you to give a, have a valuation based on current mo- uh, multiples of 500 million? And then well, you're, you're right. I mean, I'd never thought about this, but Kerry basically then had to say, "Well, can Boris do it?" I mean, is a guy is it, can I trust this guy? Is he going to fire in his belly to do it? And uh, Burning you know, desire. Does he know enough about it, you know, and uh, can we build a brand? They were confident they could build a brand with me and for me. But that that, uh, that makes sense to me. Well, so what you're saying is if I'm a startup today, founder, is is that expect to give 20% away 
at least in, in, in your case, your organisations like yours, expect to give 20% away. There's not so much about busting your ass trying to prove that it's worth $5 million or $10 million or $15 million. It's more about being able to show what will it be worth in the future based on certain assumptions and things happening and making sure that I can convince someone like you guys is that, that I'm the dude who can get it there. Yeah. Can we? Can you find a 1,000 customers around the world who pay $10,000 yeah. for your product? That's yeah. pretty big business. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's and it's again, it's not scientific. It's and often often founders will come with the first customer or the second customer and the third customer. And you think, huh, those are from three different industries, and they're all paying them five thousand dollars for this pretty basic thing. I could see it them paying ten thousand dollars, and I could see thousands of people in each of their kind of categories paying for it. There's a possibility, but remember, at the early stage, you just don't know. On, on behalf of people listening to this, and there'll be a lot of people. Really appreciate your honesty and openness um, and frankness in this conversation, particularly about what Blackbird's uh, thesis is and how they go about their business. I really appreciate it. That is, that's a big deal because everyone's always asking me about this stuff, always. Um, but I think you've also shed a lot of light on I mean, clearly the importance of organisations like Blackbird in, in the Australian economy because I actually believe this, this you know, I dedicate my life to this stuff, but uh, I see what you guys is as of national interest in terms of how Australia sits globally and what we can produce here that can help the rest of the world be a better place, whether it be environment or health or just tech or AI, whatever it is. Um, I think that uh, people should, who are founders, who have got this burning desire should start to open, not not feel scared to open themselves up to organisations like yours and your various programs. You see, you've got Giant, you've got Founder. What's the other one? You so Startmate Start is Mate. the accelerator program. And remember in Startmate, you can do a startup, but you can also go and do um, one of the fellowship programs, which is to get a job in a startup to then figure out, huh, startups for me, learn what a startup's like and then jump out. There's, we're trying to create as many pathways as possible for people to become a founder one day and build a great company. I, I just think, People, don't be nervous. No, remember, it's like it's our job to see th if you come and pitch and you do a bad pitch and you say the wrong thing and you say the wrong acronym, it's on us to see through that and to find the uniqueness. I just want people to understand that Nick is not a scary guy. He's he's actually genuinely happy to help. That's the gut feeling I'm getting. So, But a lot of people get scared. I remember, I was a founder once yep. who was trying to knock on doors and go, can I have some money? And so and you know how hard it is. Yeah. And, and, and generally empathize with individuals. So this is not some hard-ass investment bank organization. Uh, probably is my point. Check it out and have a look at what what's in there that might actually help you and reach out. Try something, especially if you've got this burning desire. Nick Crocker, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.